The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Frank Holland, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show is live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We begin with stocks flat right now ahead of the open after the 10-year yield. It cracks 5%, albeit briefly. Again, futures pretty much flat right now. They were lower earlier this morning. All this coming after Fed Chairman Jay Powell said that policymakers will remain attentive when it comes to inflation and future rate hikes but stopping short of satisfying the doves and the hawks alike. Also, in a rare Oval Office primetime address, President Biden makes the case for ongoing support for Ukraine and Israel, calling it vital for U.S. national security. We're going to stick with Washington. Congressman Jim Jordan preparing for round three of speaker votes today. And the bottom it may be in for the second largest economy in the world as China's central bank takes new action to shore up the markets there. It is Friday, October the 20th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. Happy Friday as well. I'm Frank Holland. Let's get you ready to start the day. As always, we kick off the hour with the check on U.S. stock futures. Take a look Uh, right now. Lower across the board, that looks like it would open up about 30 points lower. Uh, The Nasdaq also taking a leg lower as well, but the S&P essentially flat. This after a rough session for the major averages that saw the Dow, the S&P, and the Nasdaq all close nearly 1% lower. The Dow transports and the Russell, they're also coming off sharp declines. They're on pace to extend their multi-week losing streaks. You see the Dow down just over 1%. The Russell, hard hit here, down 1.5%. Fed Chairman Jay Powell offering investors a fresh look at the policy path forward for the Fed, making a case there is likely still more work to do. We have models for everything. We have formulas for everything. Ultimately, as a practitioner, Mm -hmm. we have to, you know, be focused on what the economy is telling us, even taking lags into account. What's it telling us? Does, Does it feel like policy is too tight right now? I would have to say no. And check out the action. The S&P 500 yesterday during the course of Powell's comments, which kicked off at 12 p.m. Eastern. You can see right here the market's just kind of moving sideways at 12. During uh, his speech, you can see a a bit of a spike. It actually started just a few minutes after 10. There were climate protesters that uh, 12, excuse me. There were climate protesters that delayed the speech. You see a spike here. And then later on, you see this dip to the downside. This is later on when Powell struck a more hawkish tone, I should say. And you can see the market's moving lower throughout the day. Powell's comments, however, they juiced the bond market with the 10-year yield briefly topping 5% for the first time since 2007. You can see this morning it's at 4.94. And then look over here on this side of your screen right at the bottom. We have a graphic right here. We're going to follow the movements on the 10-year all morning long. We're going to continue to watch it again. Touched 5%. You can see it right here. Touching 5% very briefly yesterday. Back below 5% now, but you can follow along with us all morning long. We're going to keep this up all morning long on the bottom of the screen. And certainly, last but not least, we're going to check the energy market, specifically oil as always. We start with WTI, the U.S. benchmark. You see right there, WTI back above 90 bucks a barrel, moving a 1.5% higher this morning. Brent crude uh, almost at 94 bucks a barrel, also up about 1.5% this morning. Natural gas unchanged. 
Let's dig into all of this with Ryan Dietrich, chief market strategist at the Carson Group. Ryan, good morning. It is really great to have you here this morning. Good morning, Frank. Thanks for having me back. All right. So the question of the day, what did you make of Jay Powell's comments? How does it shape your view of the equity markets for the rest of this year? Yeah, Frank, I mean, it's almost a tale of two halves, right? When you had the prepared remarks, it was kind of kind of dovish. And honestly, the whole statement we'd say was slightly more dovish. I mean, Fed fund futures dropped for a hike in November and dropped in December from 40% down to 25%. But we're fully aware that it was, then there was Q&A. They asked him, hey, are things tight? And he said, maybe it's not tight enough, almost running counter to what the prepared remarks were said. But it is what it is. We saw the reaction, obviously, in yields like you just showed. Now, the good news, we are beneath 5% now, but I am fully aware that can that can change quickly. So I'll put it this way. We're about flat for the S&P in October, right? You look historically, October can be kind of rough. Usually by the second half of October is when things get better. I'll just put one final comment on this. Yesterday, initial claims coming under 200,000, right? We've seen a lot of positive economic data. To, in our opinion, that's one of the main reasons we've had these higher moves in yields because the economy has been so strong. And we, we are still in the camp, Frank. We haven't changed our opinion. We don't think the Fed's going to hike anymore. We think the Fed's likely done. I know the reaction in yields yesterday. But okay. again, the prepared remarks kind of were in line with what some of the other previous um, Fed members have been saying, which, again, is the higher yields have done a lot of the Fed's work here. You know, it's so interesting you say that right now. I want to play this clip for you. This is also Jay Powell. Uh, again, we saw the bond market rise very briefly uh, when we talk about the 10-year, that yield crossing 5%. I want to get your take on Powell's comments on bond yields and the impact of the overall economy. The whole idea of, of uh, tightening policy is to affect financial conditions. And to the extent higher bond rates reflect, they, they do. They're producing tighter financial conditions right now. So that is, that's how monetary policy works. That's literally how it works. So, again, in principle, as long as they're, as long as uh, bond rates are going up, for the for some reasons, and they're not going up just because they expect us to do things. So, that if we don't do them, they'll come right back down. As long as, and we don't think that's the case. Actually, does it, I don't think it's the case. How did you read those remarks by Jay Powell? I, I was actually doing halftime report at the New York Stock Exchange yesterday. I talked to a couple of traders, also a couple of portfolio managers. They just said that was just kind of muddled. They weren't really sure what to make of it. Well, I'll be honest, I was kind of thinking the same thing when I saw it live and listening to it there again. I mean, that's kind of the Fed's job is to kind of talk and almost confuse us all, I feel. But but again, I mean, he's talking at the same time that, listen, higher for longer is here. I mean, look at what, the, again, the Fed fund futures are saying. We've been in that camp for a while. We don't think we said all year there'd be no cuts this year. Um, but at the same time, we don't think they're going to hike. So it, 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 it's a, it is a little bit of a mixed bag. But But I'll be honest, Frank, again. Higher yields aren't a shock with the economy strengthening like they are. But we do feel optimistic that 5% clearly is a big psychological level. Maybe we could be nearing some type of a potential peak in yields here, which wouldn't be abnormal when you look at kind of some of the over-the-top negative sentiment that we're seeing. People okay. are kind of becoming very, very pessimistic on bonds as well. I mean, TLT, we've seen it, you know, it. almost a worse sell-off now than we've seen in history for stocks. Ryan, I want to come full circle. So, again, now that we know where Jay Powell stands, we have some sense of direction of where the Fed wants to go. Uh, what sectors are you looking at? Where are you seeing opportunities? Yeah, we've we've liked the cyclicals all year, Frank. We're still in that camp. I mean, industrials and energy have been two of our favorite sectors. Relative strength, energy has been the leader. We all know that. But industrials start to show some leadership. And I'll say we're more neutral financials. But one thing that if there's anything encouraging for the bulls out there, we have seen some strength coming out of the large financial companies all of a sudden. I know earnings were last week, so that's a potential thing to be aware of. And the other one that I know people don't like a lot: small caps. We do have a slight overweight to small caps. And I'm aware of the weak action that we've seen. But I'll tell you, Frank, if you think we're closer to a peak in yields, like we think we're getting 
sitting there with again with the Fed likely done hiking um, with the economy, in our opinion, that is still on fairly firm footing. Small caps look good. And then one final comment. You look at, okay. um, you know, forward um, P.E. multiples. Small caps are historically cheap relative to large. So it's one of the cheaper areas out there. So that's an area we like small caps and cyclicals still. You know, Ryan, that's really the question. Have bond yields peaked? I want to remind the audience again, we're watching the 10 year all morning long. Take a look right there on the bottom of your screen. Ryan Dietrich, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. All right, turning now to Washington and President Biden making a rare primetime Oval Oval Office address. Biden making his case to the American people. The U.S. needs to support Ukraine and Israel as its war with Hamas continues. NBC's Alice Barr joins me now with much more. Alice, good morning. Good morning, Frank. President Biden insisted that American leadership is what holds the world together in only the second Oval Office address of his presidency, underscoring the gravity of the message he wanted to deliver directly to the American people. As war rages in the Middle East and in Ukraine, President Biden making the case that the distant conflicts directly affect America's national security. History has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. The president expected to make a pitch to Congress today for $100 billion in aid. 60 billion to Ukraine, the rest for Israel, Taiwan, and addressing the migrant influx at the southern border. Amid concerns, Americans are growing weary of sending tax dollars overseas. President Biden framing the support for allies as a smart investment that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations. He also announced this week $100 million in humanitarian aid for Gaza and the West Bank, drawing a sharp line between Hamas terrorists and Palestinian civilians. The president has set up to 20 trucks loaded with desperately needed food, water and medicine could cross from Egypt into Gaza as soon as today. We really want to see them cross, and uh, the numbers that I've seen uh, mentioned are not going to be nearly enough. A growing humanitarian crisis in Gaza under relentless airstrikes and new signs an Israeli ground assault could soon begin, seeking to root out Hamas after its massive and brutal terror attack, as U.S. officials hope to contain escalating tensions in a region on edge. President Biden also called on all Americans to reject hate and to denounce anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. And he also insisted that partisan politics can't get in the way of America's responsibilities as a great nation and apparent reference to the need on Capitol Hill to kind of get the act together to be ready to supply more of this aid. Frank. So, Alice, again, this is a rare primetime Oval Office address for the president. Uh, He also touched on that hospital bombing in Gaza. What was his message there? This was the most declarative that he has been so far, saying that Israel was not responsible for that blast. We've seen just terrible images, terrible reports coming out of there. But he also made clear that he is going to hold Israel to account to ensure that it follows the rules of war and that it allows that humanitarian aid to get in to civilians in Gaza. Frank. All right. Alice Barr live in D.C. Alice, thank you very much. We have a lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. But first, it's Morgan Stanley versus the China Beige Book and the debate over whether or not now is the time to buy the dip in Chinese equities. 
plus stormy skies and solar stocks. Why shares of Solar Edge, they're now sinking ahead of the open. And then later, back to D.C. in the race for House Speaker, why Congressman Jim Jordan says he is not backing down. We have a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Taking a look at futures right now, we're seeing it looks like the Dow would open up just about 35 points lower. The S&P and the NASDAQ both down fractionally, pretty close to flat, uh, but down a few basis points right now. Let's see how Europe is shaping up as its trading day gets underway. Our Jamana Bersetchi is live in our London newsroom with much more on the early action. Jamana, good morning. Good morning, Frank. Well, it is a decidedly risk-off session. Broadbait losses across all of these indices in Europe. The stock 600 down about seven-tenths of a percent. It's fourth consecutive day of losses, sitting at a seven-month low. All of these indices are trading underwater. The 1500 in the UK down half a percent. We had some weak macro data come in today. Consumer confidence, lowest level since July. Retail sales volumes also falling shorter uh, versus expectations. But even the Swiss, which is the relative defensive index, down four-tenths of a percent, coming off its worst day of the year yesterday. But let me just switch over and tell you a little bit more about what's been happening with the yields. Obviously a big focus over in the U.S., but over in Europe as well, starting with the 10-year bond, sitting at 2.93. So today we are marginally lower in, in, in yield terms, so about one basis point lower. But for the week as a whole, we're up 18 basis points. This is its sharpest rise in yield terms since July. So big, big, big moves over there. Ten-year gilts also sitting at 4.69. What's not shown here is the 30-year gilt. Borrowing costs there at the highest level since 1998, Frank. So again, this upward movement of yield is affecting markets all over the world. Ten-year France sitting at 3.54. And then a lot of focus on ten-year Italy. Look at that. It's at 4.93. So the spread between Italy and Germany is firmly above 200 basis points. Some people are saying that it is cause for concern given that, of course, that spells a bit of trouble for the periphery funding costs uh, when it comes to Italy. One other thing we're watching out for later today, S&P Global are going to be reviewing their rating for uh, Italy's sovereign debt. It's not expected to change negatively, but it, is, it could be a catalyst for uh, bond investors in that market. All right, Jamana, thank you very much. And to your point, we are watching bond yields here in the U.S. For the audience, there's a, a, a ticker right there on the bottom of your screen. We continue to watch the yield on the 10-year. It's at 4.94. Jamana, thank you very much. Our Jamana Brissetti live in our London newsroom. All right, we're going to stick with the overseas action. China leaving its benchmark one- and five-year loan prime rates unchanged, also injecting a record amount of cash into the economy to try to bolster growth. The move is just one of several easing measures by the People's Bank of China. 
as it looks to keep the country's uneven recovery alive and ease concerns about a liquidity crunch. But there are some signs a bottom could be in. This week alone, China reported better-than-expected third-quarter GDP and retail sales. Let's talk much more about the outlook for China with Shazad Kazi, Chief Operating Officer at the China Beige Book International. Shazad, great to have you here in studio. Thank you. All right, so you put out a report. Give us a sense. Give us the, the big-picture look right now. Have we seen the bottom when it comes to the Chinese economy? You know, Frank, one of the things that we've been saying for months now is that the Chinese economy is performing much better than markets think. And the Q3 GDP number was, quite frankly, no surprise to us. We saw in our data that there had been sequential improvement in the second quarter over the first quarter and similarly in the third quarter over the second quarter. Uh, So outside of the crisis in property, which is very serious, uh, you are seeing other parts of the economy performing uh, uh, much better than the consensus would have you believe. All right. So better than we believe. But in general, I think everybody can agree that Chinese consumers have been slow to spend. Uh, They were very worried about the China lockdown measures. They've been holding on to their money. So this retail sales number, do you think that's the start of a trend going forward where we'll see Chinese consumers spending more? Well, some of it is going to be base effects compared to where we were this time last year. Putting that aside, I think what we've seen is that Chinese consumers have been willing to spend in areas like travel, dining out, you know, leisure, that sort of thing. But they are not willing to spend uh, on, on luxuries or cars in that kind of manner. Keep in mind, China has never reliably seen its economy recover because of consumption. And I don't think this time will be any different. Very different than the U.S., though. We're very dependent on the consumer here. So I want to talk about the investor angle when it comes to China. Morgan Stanley out with a new note this morning, advising investors actually against buying the dip in Chinese equities. They cite uh, the efforts to stabilize the property sector, something you mentioned, struggling, and also efforts to avoid deflation have been ineffective. Do you agree with this take from Morgan Stanley? You know, what we've been saying is that markets have been way too bearish cyclically um, and that there is reason for optimism. Uh, But when it comes to the structural factors, they have been way too optimistic. Uh, It seems like Morgan Stanley's view comments are somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, The reality is that we're not looking at a Chinese economy that's going to see growth rates above 5% next year or the year after. It's all sub-5% growth as far as our outlook is concerned, Uh, which means that the, the entire uh, you know, portfolio uh, needs to be shaken up and, and uh, investors need to price, right. price, that, price that in. You know, speaking of keeping things in perspective, every time you come here, you kind of give us the sense of the oil perspective related to China. Um, we hear a lot of people talking that, you know, it's slow demand in China when it comes to oil. What's the real picture right now? Right now, I'm looking at WTI back above 90 bucks a barrel. Brent crude at about 93 and a half a barrel. Both of them up about one and a half percent. That's on the tensions in the Middle East right now, boosting oil prices. What about China? How does China plan this picture from now to the year end? You know, I think China's oil buying uh, behavior is often disconnected from the macro fundamentals. And what we've seen this year is that China has bought up a bunch of oil earlier in the year when prices were low, um, which means that if prices start really shooting up because of the crisis in the Middle East, Chinese buying will absolutely slow because they're sitting on a lot of inventories. Um, And China can also process a lot of oil and release it into the markets. So a lot of the oil price action will be affected on both ends that way by China's behavior. So even as the economy potentially ramps up in China, their demand for oil, that's not going to increase because you're saying the stockpiles are pretty strong. Uh, That's correct. China's sitting on a lot of oil right now. All right. Shazad Kazi, great to see you. Thank you as always. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, Stellantis upping the ante in its talks with the UAW as that strike now enters its sixth week. We have the full story coming up right after this break. Stay with us. 
from their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. It's time now for your big money movers. We're going to start with SolarEdge. Those shares not looking so sunny. The company cutting its Q3 profit and gross margin outlook, forecasting significantly lower fourth quarter revenue due to a slump in solar power installations in Europe. Executives say SolarEdge has seen a substantial number of unexpected cancellations from the European distributors in recent months. Those shares down more than 24 percent right now. HP Enterprise also losing steam after offering a 2024 full-year forecast that was below expectations. The IT giant announcing a shift to higher growth and higher margin businesses as it looks to increase long-term profitability prospects. HPE adding, it expects cloud and artificial intelligence to represent more than 50% of revenue by 2026. Those shares down almost 4%. And Intuitive Surgical shares are falling on a third-quarter revenue miss. The company posting revenue of $1.74 billion compared to the $1.77 billion expected by analysts, though that still was up 12% year-over-year, driven by an increase in procedure volume and the installed base of systems. Those shares down just over 8%. All right, we're going to turn to the energy sector now. Recent volatility in crude prices have sent oil and gas stocks on a very wild ride. Our Pippa Stevens is taking a deeper look into energy for this month's Sectronomics. Pippa? Good morning, Frank. Well, energy stocks are underperforming the broader market this year, with the sector up 5% compared to the S&P 500's 11% gain. But we did start to see renewed investor interest during the third quarter, with energy stocks up 11% over the last three months, while the S&P has dropped about 6%. Now, oil traders are closely watching the war between Israel and Hamas, given the proximity to oil-producing states. And as geopolitical tensions flare, we took a look at energy companies' revenue streams to see who makes the most abroad. Looking at the sector as a whole, roughly 35% of revenue comes from outside the U.S., according to Goldman Sachs. That's higher than the broader S&P 500's 29%. Now, drilling down even further, Schlumberger has the most international revenue exposure at 84%, according to the latest round of 10K filings. Fellow oil field services company Baker Hughes follows at 77%, with producer Exxon and APA at each at more than 60%. Halliburton and APA round out the top five. Frank? I got to ask you, earnings season obviously just started a short time ago. When it comes to the energy sector, are there any big themes to look out for? So SLB kicks things off later this morning, and it actually is that international and offshore exposure that analysts say set the company up very well, since we are seeing more growth in international than in the U.S. And then I think more broadly, the key thing, of course, is to watch executive commentary around what the the uh, what the war and the conflict in the Middle East means for oil prices going forward and also what it means for their capex and drilling plans with WTI now above $90. It does start to look more appealing to open up the taps. But of course, Frank, investors want to see production numbers under control. All right, Pippa, thank you very much. Our Pippa Stevens with this month's Sectornomics. As we had to break, while the transport sector is telling a bit of a different story than today's big consumer stat, according to a new report from TransUnion, 
51% of U.S. consumers. They plan to spend more than $500 this holiday shopping season. That's up from 36% back in 2020. We are back right after this. It's right around 5.30 a.m. here in the New York City area, and there's just a lot more ahead on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. Proceeding with caution, Jay Powell suggesting the Fed may not be completely done with rate hikes despite inflation progress. Former Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson, he's here to help lay out the central bank's policy path forward. And will the third time, will that be the charm? That's the hope for Jim Jordan as he continues his fight to be the next Speaker of the House. We are live in Washington with the very latest. And another of the big three automakers taking an axe to headcount as the ripple effects of the UAW strike, they could just continue to grow. It is Friday, October the 20th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange and happy Friday. As always, we're going to pick up the half an hour with the check on U.S. stock futures after a rough session for stocks yesterday. Let's take a look at the picture right now. You see right across the board, the Dow actually hitting its lows of the morning, down about 70 points right now. The S&P and the Nasdaq both fractionally lower as well. So I also want to show you the S&P yesterday. Of course, Jay Powell, his speech at the Economic Club of New York, the big news that's going to influence the markets, not only yesterday, but also today. So take a look. The, the speech, it actually was supposed to start at noon. It got delayed by some climate protesters. You see right here, shortly after he did get started and take the podium, uh, the markets, they rose just about a half a percent on his seemingly dovish comments. Later, you see that move to the downside on seemingly hawkish comments. And then overall, the S&P ending the day just about one percent lower. We're going to continue to talk about Jay's com- Jay Powell's comments throughout the show. So pressure at the open also coming on bond yields as they hit their highest level in decades with the 10 year. Very briefly broke through five percent yesterday for the first time since 2007. You can see those moves back above five percent. Just around there. Right now, we continue to track the 10 year this morning at 4.94. There's also something right here on your screen. You can track it all morning long with us. But again, watching the 10 year at 4.94, briefly touching that 5% yield just yesterday. Now, checking out the rest of the curve. Take a look. Elevated across the board, uh, the two year yield right now at 5.15, the long bond, that yield back above 5% as well. And it's not just bond yields that are moving higher. Wall Street's fear gauge, that's the VIX, also popping in recent days sitting at its highest level since all the way back in March. Remember, that's back when we saw the collapse of SVB. You see that sharp tick to the upside right here in recent days. All right, now we're going to go to stocks rough session yesterday and what's shaping up to be a repeat this morning following some fresh commentary from Fed Chairman Jay Powell, likely his last words before the central bank's next policy decision near the end of this month. Powell highlighting progress on fighting inflation, but promising the FOMC will be, quote, resolute and sticking to its 2% target when it comes to inflation, repeating his latest mantra of higher for longer. The evidence of your eyes is that the economy is, is handling much higher rates, at least for now, without difficulty. So notionally, that, that might tell you that, that the neutral rate has risen, or it may just tell you that we haven't had rates high enough for long enough. We have models for everything. We have formulas for everything. Ultimately, as a practitioner, mm-hmm. we have to you know, be focused on what the economy is telling us, even taking lags into account. What's it telling us? Does, does it feel like policy is too tight right now? I would have to say no. Joining me now is Roger Ferguson, former TIA CEO, former Federal Reserve Vice Chairman, and of course, a CNBC contributor. Roger, good morning. It is great to have you here. Good morning, Frank. Nice to hear, be with you. So give us a sense. What was your take on Jay Powell's comments? Did you come off with a sense that he was hawkish or dovish? 
I came off the sense that he was straight down the middle, and here's why I say that. Um, he observed uh, that, indeed, uh, policy is already restrictive. He observed that they're making progress towards their goals. Uh, he observed that, and importantly, they're making progress towards both goals. Um, and so, and he said they had to be um, uh, prudent or cautious in how they proceed. So I think in terms of the short term, it felt more like a wait-and-see speech, no movement in November. He had to say, as he did, over the longer term, the economy continues to be strong and they are prepared to move. So I think it, I wouldn't describe it as, as hawkish. I think it was straight down the middle with probably not much excitement about moving in November, open to moving, if necessary, you know, one more time this year or maybe early next year. Um, so I don't know if that's uh, hawkish or dovish. I think he's trying to take it straight down the middle. I think a lot of people are trying to figure out if it was hawkish or dovish as well, Roger, in all fairness. Um, I do want to ask you about his comments about bond yields. He basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm not saying exactly what he said, but he says it looks like the rise in bond yields is doing some of the Fed's work for it. Um, he believed that they were rising for what he called the right reasons, not just because people believe the Fed is going to take action. What did you make of those comments? I think uh, two things. One is, yes, they are not anxious about it. I've heard a number of Fed uh, officials in their public statements saying something very similar, that because the 10-year and bond yields in general are higher, that may be doing some of the work for the Fed. Um, I, I was surprised that he said it had nothing to do with Fed expectations or expectations of Fed policy. That's almost never the case. But he is right. There are other factors as well, um, including an expectation that the economy is going to continue to be relatively robust, as we've seen from incoming data. And I think he mentioned appropriately, you know, fiscal policy. The, the government is having to issue quite a bit in the way of Treasury securities to make up for uh, the spending that's going on. There's one change in tone from Jay Powell. I know you noted this as well. We had initial jobless claims out yesterday, lowest level since Q1 of earlier this year. And he didn't really highlight that. In, in previous times, we've heard from Jay Powell and other Fed officials, they've really cited tightness in the labor market as inflationary. This time, didn't really talk very much about it. What did you make of that? I made a, of it exactly what you said. So one of the reasons I answered your first question is straight down the middle is things he didn't say that he has historically said. One, he did observe that there is some tightness, but the labor market seems less tight than before. Two, he didn't talk about um, what's called, you know, sort of super core inflation, um, which was one of the things that he had been talking about in the past. So I observe, as you did, some of the things that were not said were, to me, pretty telling. And that's why I came to the conclusion that probably not a move in December, but uh, in November, but ready, but not that decided about a move in December. All right. So to the big question now, Roger, I think a lot of people are probably asking you for advice about this. When do you expect the Fed to actually cut? People are saying, of course, they have to stop hiking before they can cut. But when do you see a cut at least possible? Do you see it in the, the first half of 2024, the second half of 2024 at all next year? I, I think uh, my view has been probably not next year, if next year at all, certainly towards the latter end of the year. First half, absolutely not in the cards. Depending on how things play out, you know, that, that next hike, the last hike, might not be December. It might be beginning of the year if the economy is proven to be strong enough. So I think it's highly unlikely to see a cut next year. If we do see one at all, it would certainly be the second half, certainly not the first half. Let me ask you a more longer-term question. Jay Powell, and again, I'm paraphrasing, essentially said, and that's what I took out of it, uh, that we might just be uh, in an environment where we're going to have a higher neutral rate. It'll just be higher from now on. What did you make of that? 
I agree with it, frankly. Uh, I think many people do not recognize how unusual the last uh, 10 to 15 years have been. You know, uh, it is not meant to be that money is free, relatively speaking. Uh, getting to what's called the zero lower bound, where the Fed uh, set Fed funds target is at or close to zero for long periods of time is abnormal, um, not the normal thing. So I would think that uh, the possibility of rates being, uh, frankly, back to normal, higher than they have been historically for the last 10 to 15 years, but similar to what they had been earlier, uh, is very much in the cards. There are a lot of forces that suggest that might be the case. So I'm, I'm in alignment with the thought that you know, we should not get used to money being free. That was abnormal. Okay. And we should expect uh, more normal pricing for money all along the yield curve. All right, Roger Ferguson, it's always great to have you here for your insight on days like these. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's Thank get you. to a check on some of this morning's top corporate stories. Always appreciate you, Pippa Stevens. Good morning. <laughs> Hello again, Frank. Well, Stellantis announcing fresh layoffs as the UAW's labor strike enters its sixth week. The company is saying it will temporarily let go of an additional 100 workers at its machining plant in Perrysburg, Ohio, starting on Monday. Stellantis now has more than 1,500 workers on temporary layoffs at its facilities in three states. UAW President Sean Fain will hold a Facebook Live event later today. China is threatening to limit the exports of a key material used in electric vehicle batteries. Officials announcing special export permits will be required for certain kinds of graphite. The move is seen as retaliation for the U.S. restrictions on technology sales to Chinese companies. And the SEC dropping its lawsuit against two Ripple Labs executives. This according to court filings. The agency had claimed that Ripple's CEO, as well as its co-founder, aided and abetted the company in violating federal securities laws with the sale of the digital coin known as XRP. The SEC declined to comment to CNBC. Crypto prices getting a boost on the back of this development. Bitcoin up nearly 4%. Frank? All right, Pippa, thank you very much. All right, we're going to turn our attention now to Washington, D.C., and Republican Congressman Jim Jordan. He's not giving up his fight to become the next Speaker of the House. Lawmakers in that chamber set to hold a third vote on Jordan's bid later this morning as he works to rally critical holdout votes. Our Emily Wilkins joins us now with much more on this story. Emily, good morning. Big question here. Will the third time be the charm for Jim Jordan? Well, at this point, it doesn't look like it. And it was such a long day yesterday on Capitol Hill, but it ended right where it began. Yesterday, we went in, began to take that third vote. It was very clear that Jim Jordan was still short the votes that he needed to become speaker. Now we've got a vote scheduled for 10 a.m. today, but it's not clear that the needle has moved at all for Jordan. He met last night with more than a dozen holdouts trying to see if he could switch some of their opposition to support. Uh, Some of the New York members told me that he tried to offer them a deal on raising the caps for state and local tax deductions. But really, every member that we spoke with who left the room said they were still uniformly opposed to Jim Jordan. Congressman John Rutherford said the point of the meeting wasn't for Jordan to change the mind of the holdouts, but for the holdouts to change Jordan's mind about continuing to run. Uh, our mind is set. Okay. He needed to know there is no way forward for the speakership. He missed his moment of leadership when he failed Steve Scalise. And that was pretty much uh, everybody's opinion. 
Now, in the second round, Jordan failed to get the support of 22 Republicans that last time earlier in the week. Several members say that he's going to get even less support on a potential third ballot. And there's signs Jordan could be settling in for a fight on this one. Congressman Warren Davidson, he's an ally of Jordan. He tweeted last night that votes are expected throughout the weekend. And while things look bleak for Jordan, there is really no clear next step for House Republicans at this point. They had a four-hour meeting on Thursday, and many of them rejected a proposal to give Acting Speaker Patrick McHenry the ability to pass legislation. Remember, Congress is soon going to need to vote on a White House package of $100 billion in aid to Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, and the southern border. Plus, remember that government funding runs out after November 17th, and lawmakers are going to have to figure out if they can put a stop measure in, in place. Frank, there's just a lot to do at this point, and really no path to someone getting the gavel. Yeah, certainly a lot of action down there in D.C. I want to ask you, what's the mood on Capitol Hill? We're now on 17 days without a speaker, I believe. It is not great. I mentioned that four-hour meeting yesterday that Republicans had behind closed doors. Um, We got reports from lawmakers that, you know, there were heated words exchanged, that there was yelling, there was frustration between Matt Gaetz, Kevin McCarthy, and other members. You're seeing it explode a little bit on social media with members taking swipes at each other. A lot of folks who have opposed Jim Jordan have come forward and say that they and their families are getting credible death threats. There's just a lot of tension on Capitol Hill right now, and I think it's all exacerbated by the fact that there really is not a clear path forward. You've heard other names other than Jordan's come up, but at this point, it just really seems like Republicans are not unified and are having a tough time getting unified between any potential path forward. All right, our Emily Wilkins live in D.C. Emily, thank you very much. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, potential trouble for the transports. We talked to a top analyst on why fresh headwinds for the sector are not pumping the brakes on his optimism. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. A number of transport companies opening their books this week, offering a bit of a mixed picture for demand and for volume. For example, CSX reporting an 8% drop in revenue and a 22% decline in EPS year over year. That's an East Coast-focused rail. Knight Swift, the biggest trucking company in the U.S., also posting a dip in EPS, down 67% year over year, but growing revenue by 6%, helped primarily by its less-than-truckload business. That's the same kind of trucking business that Yellow was in before it went bankrupt. And all this as the transports are set to cap off a five-week losing streak. Joining me now with much more on this is Ken Hexter, research analyst at Bank of America. Ken, it is great to have you here. Great. Good morning. All right. So we're hitting on some of those results. Uh, EPS, big dips there for two very big transports company. Earlier in the week, we had J.B. Hunt out. They said that we're not at the end of the freight recession, but they're seeing signs of a rebound. What are you seeing? Are we in that freight recession? Or are we working out of it? Yeah, this one is just a really elongated freight recession. You know, normally we'd see a lot of bankruptcies of smaller carriers. You'd see that eventual rebound. You'd start to see pricing. This one, we had so much stored profits left over from that COVID rebound, that tightening we saw, that we're just seeing carriers stick around for longer. And that's, that's elongating this tail of this freight recession. So we're still in it. J.B. Hunt actually reversed their comments. Only a couple months ago, they said we're at the tail end. Now they're saying we're still in it. It just shows you how long this one is lasting. So I want to ask you about a a macro factor on the transports. And by the way, to the audience, if you look on the bottom of your screen, on the left-hand side of the screen, if you're facing it, we're tracking the 10-year elevated rates. Are those part of the story here when it comes to transports and some of the pressure on them? 
Yeah, you know, absolutely. What you're talking about is something that you haven't seen for 40 years. The impact of inflation, high interest rates, all of that is impacting the consumer. And that's causing volumes to not be as strong. And when volumes are down, transports don't make anything. They just move it. And if nothing's moving, it's just, you know, extending this tail. All right. So looking at some uh, some stock movements right now, Night Swift, um, big day after its earnings report yesterday. Biggest trucking company in the U.S. Important to note that about 70 to 75 percent of everything we buy moves around the U.S. in truck. What did you make of that report in particular? Well, it was a surprise only because spot rates, uh, trucking is about 15 percent moves on spot rates. The rest moves on more contracted rates. But that's the incremental. That's where you can really see how things are moving. And those rates have absolutely been through the floor. They're normally about $1.65 per mile. We're at $1.25 per mile right now. So you can tell how weak the environment is. And so the expectation, and, and as you mentioned, earnings were way down. But they bought this other company, uh, U.S. Express. It's about 6,000 tractors about a third of the company, and you're seeing the benefits from that. One other question I want to talk to you about, intermodal. Uh, that's container shipping, largely consumer goods. Um, a lot of people think that's a read on what retailers think consumers are going to spend. However, we just had our big retail number today saying that more people are going to spend more money this year, uh, above 500 bucks than they did back in 2020. What are you hearing when it comes to intermodal volumes? Again, that's often computers, sneakers, things that people buy in stores as regular consumers. Yeah, J.B. Hunt just reported also, and they talked about intermodal after being negative for three quarters, inflected in the middle of of, uh, August and September. We're seeing that turn positive. We're seeing that, as you mentioned, the, the spot pricing start to come off the floor. So we're starting to see that come off the floor. It's not off to the races yet. We've just rebounded as our just like our truck shipper survey. We're seeing a little bit move off that floor. It's getting a little bit better, but it's still pretty weak. Does that signal a soft holiday season? It's, so FedEx has already commented that we're, okay. we're kind of flattish year over year. All right, we've got to leave it there. Ken, thank you so much for being here. Great to have you in studio. Thank you for having me. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, the one word that every investor needs to know today, plus KKM Financials. Jeff Kilberg on the tech stocks that may not be magnificent, but he's still pretty high on, including this one, up 35% year to date. We're going to give you that name when we come back. Stay with us. Back to Worldwide Exchange, we have a market flash for you. Bloomberg News is reporting that Ozempic maker Novo Nordisk and Manjaro maker Eli Lilly, they're testing weight loss drugs for kids that are as young as six years old. Taking a look at both of those stocks right now. Uh, in the red right now, but we'll continue to watch this story again. This is according to Bloomberg. Uh, both of those drug makers testing weight loss drugs for kids as young as six. All right, turning now to the market day ahead. Fed speeches on top of investor radars today following j yesterday. Getting a quick check on the futures right now. You can see they are in the red across the board. The Dow looks like it would open up just about 60 point lower right now. And we're also watching the 10 year as we continue to watch for that 10 year yield to move to 10 percent. You can see right there on the bottom of your screen. We're going to continue to watch it throughout the morning. You can track with us. But looking uh, overall at the bond picture right now, the 10 year at 4.94, the two year and the 30 year also elevated yields above 5 percent. With that, Let's bring in Jeff Kilberg, founder and CEO of KKM Financial and a CNBC contributor. Jeff, good morning. Great to see you. Hey, good to see you, Frank. All right, we got to start. What was your take on what you heard from Jay Powell yesterday? How does it shape your view of equities going into today? 
Well, actually, I thought Jay Powell was quite dovish. And I know initially the market reacted to that. We saw the 10-year yield go down to 4.90%. And then once he started to hedge himself, which he is so good at doing, he eloquently talked about being resolute. You talked about that earlier in the show. I think that kind of put the bond vigilantes back in the captain's chair. And what did they do? They ran the 10-year yield back up to 5%. They achieved their target of 5%. But I think when you really digest what Fed Chairman Powell is saying, I think it'll be more of a dovish tilt. And you saw the CME FedWatch tool, which tracks the probabilities, the odds of what those rate hikes will be. It diminished dramatically in the month of December. So I think the rate hike possibility for the rest of 2023 and maybe for the rest of 2024 is off the table. All right. So with that in mind, Jeff, you're saying he was somewhat dovish. What is your wax word of the day? My wax word of the day is persist. And persist really applies, I think, to the U.S. consumer. It persists or relies also to the yields and treasuries. And you're also seeing just the persistence of the appetite for risk. And I know the VIX right now is above 21, but I think you're seeing the markets persist. I know we're in the middle of red October. We had a rough August and September, but I think you're going to see markets persist to move higher, which has been a theme all year for 2023. All right. So if the markets are going to persist and move higher, um, how are you viewing equities? Are there certain sectors you're in favor of? We had a mystery chart up just a short time ago. We're going to reveal that to the audience right now. That's one of your picks, a stock that you're very bullish on. No drum roll? All right, we're just going to show it right now. It was Intel. <laughs> why Intel? Why, why a chip name right now with all this disruption and dislocation in the chip sector? Well, that's the opportunity at hand, Frank. When you talk about what the market is contending with, if it's the war in Israel, if it's the fact that we're seeing rates move higher, we saw 30-year mortgages go above 8% for the first time, all this presents opportunity. And it's not just in the Magnificent Seven, which I do own, but if you look at Intel, if you look at Oracle, if you look at Micron, even if you look at you know some of these names, um, you know like an IBM, IBM, you know Big Blue, Boring Blue. But when you talk specifically about Intel, these are names that I think have the opportunity to move higher. When you talk about chips and chip makers in perspective of where the market is moving, I think that allows these stocks to move higher. But IBM specifically, it's a cloud player. It's been languishing and a laggard all year long. So I think if you look at where has IBM been, if we could pull up a chart, you'll see it hasn't been above $150 in almost five years. I think it's coiled, I think has the opportunity, but all four of these stocks you know, maybe the futuristic fabulous four. I don't know if that's a real catchy name like the Magnificent Seven, but I think they're poised all to move higher because they're just not talked about okay. enough. Jeff, I, I wouldn't waste my time trademarking that one. I, I liked it, but I don't know if that <laughs> one's going to catch on. Jeff Kilberg, it is always great to see you. Thank you very much. Great seeing you, Frank. All right, one more last look at the futures right now. We also want to remind the audience right there on the bottom of the screen, we're tracking the 10-year all morning long. Taking a look at futures, they remain in the red right now. Looks like the Dow would open up just about 55 points lower right now, but off of its lows of earlier this morning. The 10-year right now at 4.94, staying pretty much steady throughout the hour. All right, that's going to do it for us. we got Squawk Box coming up next. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bottom up, up, up. At participating McDonald's.